This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 65. You can find it on page 623 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Isaiah 65 starting at verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their laps both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord." Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Echor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen." But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave the name of my chosen a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind." But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people will be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed." And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not just hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I just want to say thanks for coming. We're really glad that you're here. Welcome. How do you guys like our new music stand? Yeah. Um, we're going to give it a go. This is the first week with our pulpit, so, so far so good. Let me, uh, let me announce uh, one thing before I get rolling. A couple of our staff have decided to, on um, April 9th, to do a kind of uh, landscaping workday outside before Easter. So there'll be more information to come, but I'd love to just put that in your minds that like Saturday, April 9th, we're going to try and grab a, a group of people and do some work out in the kind of... Um, courtyard area that we have out here. So I'm just going to get that uh, on, your, on your radar, and then there'll be more information in the days to come. With that, I'm going to pray, and we're just going to get rolling. Heavenly Father, we sit in submission to your word. We sit underneath your word gladly. Gladly. Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you instruct us? Would you fill our hearts with humility and receptivity? Would you apply your scriptures to places that we uh, don't even know it, but we protect or we avoid? Would you get glory from repentance this morning? Would you get glory from obedience this morning? Spirit of God, be with us. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to ask this morning, before I really get started, is what do you think about? What do you think about when you think about God? Do you think of God as being far away? Do you think of God as being elusive? evasive? To you, is God hard to get to know? What did you believe about God growing up, like when you were a kid? Do you think of God as distant or maybe even tricky? Do you think of God as mischievous, getting kind of like a kick out of our confusion or our pain? What do you think about when you think about God? Because in this section of Isaiah, we see yet again the posture of God towards sinful people. God reveals himself in the Bible, right? God reveals himself to us in his word. And let's slow down and remember two things. One, for those of us in this room that have faith in Christ, this is where God Almighty has made himself most known to us. It's where he has spoken and revealed to us who he is. He makes aspects of his character known inside this book. He explains to us what he's like. We don't have to rely on random thoughts that we have. 
And for those of you in this room that do know or that don't know God because you have no faith in Jesus Christ, let me just say this and be frank. Like the word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I I would appeal to you today, Lord, God, give us ears of faith. Open our eyes again. Let us see you. Let us hear your word for what it is. My invitation and exhortation is to listen to what God says about himself and what he says he's like and what he's doing. Today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look and listen at this text to see how God responds to people like us, to sinful people. And we're going to look at the glory of God's full-scale renewal. I'm going to look at God's posture towards sinners. I'm going to look at God's posture towards his servants. And then we're going to spend the last bit of time meditating on the kind of cosmic renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. So I'm going to begin by reading verses 2 through 7 again. Starting in verse 2 on page 623. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. Thus says the Lord, because they made offerings on mountains and insulted me on hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Throughout these verses and on until verse 17, there's a kind of compare and contrast happening. There's an ongoing kind of structure that explains This is what I do. God's saying, this is what I do. This is how I act in this type of relationship. And this is what I do. And this is how I act in this other type of relationship. God's explaining that he makes distinctions. He differentiates. He cares about how we posture ourselves toward him. What we believe about him and how that informs our decisions is a big deal to God. God takes issue with what you think about him. In fact, what we think about God is probably the most important question that we can answer today. When we look at our lives and the millions and millions of tiny little decisions that we make every day, what we think about God is exposed in those decisions. We might not be aware of it. We might not even think about it. But we should be constantly asking ourselves, what does this decision say about what I think about God? Right? What does it say? Is this decision explaining something to me about how I interact with, how I relate to the living God? The first thing I'm going to do today is I'm going to run down a list of a couple different actions or behaviors that the prophet highlights in these verses. These people are rebellious and they walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Other translations say following their own thoughts, 
following their own thoughts. God's pointing out to these people that they're rebellious. They habitually demonstrate that they don't do good things. They don't walk in good ways. They follow their own thoughts and their own devices. This should reveal something to us. We should stop and ask, what thoughts am I following? Right? Am I following thoughts that God has said about himself? Or am I following my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own kind of impulses? Ask yourself, am I organized by my own whims or notions or impressions that just pop into my mind? Because God says something about our thoughts. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians, we're instructed to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient, subservient, submissive to Christ. But in rebellion to God, we are lured off away from him in a way that isn't good by following our own devices. Our brains will play tricks on us. We have a real enemy whispering things into our minds and competing for the thoughts about God that are in this book. There's your own flesh that's at war with your regenerated spirit that's talking to you and telling you what you should be thinking and what you should be feeling. And it's aggressive. It's aggressive. It's on the offense to get you to put the Bible down and pick up Twitter or pick up Instagram or pick up Facebook. Let me be like super clear. Facebook is telling you what devices to follow. That's what everything in our culture is doing all the time. Instagram is instructing you about what thoughts you can trust. They aren't neutral. They're instructions for how to be whole according to the world's standards. They're instructions for how to be happy and satisfied, and they miss it. They're wrong. These people were following their own devices instead of God, and they find themselves in really scary places because of what they follow, because of what they follow. Think about that word for just a second, right? The bridge for application between what these people are following and what we follow is pretty small, right? It's not hard, it's not hard to make application pretty quickly. We follow things all the time. We even use the same language for the different social media realities of our lives. Why do we call looking at pictures of somebody else's life following them? What world do we live in where looking at airbrushed and phony filters of only the parts of life that we want to be shown as as following somebody? Or even on Twitter with cynical quips or sound bites, little pieces of reality. And yet, that's what we kind of call following. And following will shape us. It will form us. It will inform how we see the world and what we think of ourselves. The people in this text are following their own devices, their own thoughts into bad places. The text reveals they follow follow their own thoughts into false religion. Verses three and four make it clear. It says that they provoke God continually because they're religious, but they aren't obedient. They're religious, but they're not faithful. They're religious, but according to their own thoughts, instead of God's word to them, their religious hypocrisy is this provocation to the living God. It smacks them in the face. These people are sacrificing, but they're sacrificing in gardens. That is not what God has told them to do. They're making offerings, but they're doing it on bricks. This is not how God instructed them. Commentators point out that for these people to sacrifice in gardens is pagan influence. 
It's pagan influence. These are pagan practices seeping into their religious rituals. The altar was the rightful place for making offerings, but these Israelites are making offerings somewhere else instead. We've had, we've had quite a bit of rain in the last couple of weeks, and I live in an old house. My house was built in 1923, and this time of year, it doesn't matter how soft the rain is, if it, if it sprinkles for long enough, for long enough, no matter what, that rain finds some way to get into my basement. It's creative. It's new every time. And that's, that's what the pressures of the world are like for us. We take the constant sprinkling of the world or the constant downpour of temptation. It knocks up against the foundation and tries to seep into our hearts and seep into our church, right? If we're not vigilant and devoted to obeying God's word, the interesting thing is that these people are still religious and it it looks like seemingly small adjustments that they're making. What's the big deal about sacrificing in a garden instead of what God said? What's the big deal about making offerings on bricks instead of the altar? What's the big deal about following my own thoughts and devices? Aren't I still doing what God told me to do? Sort of, sort of. This is a subtle way that we're tempted to abandon God's instruction and it numbs us into this spot where we're willing to do other things as well. We get on a pathway when we start to ignore the instruction of God in even subtle ways. If you look at verse four, it says, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. These are the rituals of seeking revelation about life and the future from pagan sources. This, this is an example where the people are actually looking to necromancers or looking to tombs and dead people to help them understand their lives and help them forecast a future for themselves. They've drift, drifted into idolatry and false religion. Their offenses against God are clear and constant. And when you provoke the living God of the universe, there will be consequences. There will be consequences. God won't let this go on forever. God explains that he will not keep silent, but he will repay and punish iniquity. And God makes it clear that there's a distinction between true faith and false religion. And before I get into that, go back, go back up and read, uh, read verse one and the beginning of verse two with me. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was ready to be found, excuse me, by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. That has been the posture of God throughout the book of Isaiah. He's been pleading with them. The language of spreading out his hands all day long is the language of prayer. It's the language of appealing to these people. This is the living God looking at frail, small, rebellious people and in love opening his hands and saying, come. 
God's hands are spread out before these people and they're spread out before us right now in appeal. To those of us following our own devices and and being too holy for other people, to those of us that are rigid and thorny in anger against other people and anger against God, or those of us that are bitter and disappointed And for those of us that are religious and our soul is more comforted by our works than it is comforted by the grace of God, he has his hands out, open to us, open to us, just like these people. But some of them will come to God's open hand and some of them will not. Some of them will not. That's the next section of the text. Some people will swat away the outstretched hands of God like Judas did to Jesus. And it's always been that way. God makes a distinction between his people who have sought him and his people who have forsaken him. There's a theme throughout the scriptures of God choosing a people, choosing a nation, making a people for himself. And we see throughout the story of the Bible, some of God's people are God's people and some of God's people are not God's people. This is true all the way up to the time of Jesus. And it's true now. It's true in the church In the book of Isaiah, this is referred to as this remnant people. These are the people within God's nation of Israel who are truly obedient and faithful because they love God. They have faith. They obey him. Isaiah 10, 21 references references the remnant when it says, they will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. And then you have Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 9 explaining that only children of faith Only children of the faith of Abraham are true children of Abraham. You have to have faith in Jesus to be one of God's chosen people. And in Jesus' day, he tells us the parable of the wheat and the tares, which explains how there will be people among the people of Jesus who are not the people of Jesus. Even today, even inside the church, even inside our church, this will be the case. But the good news is that it doesn't have to scare us and it doesn't have to scare you. The reason it doesn't have to scare you is because God spreads out his hands to you right now and says, come, come. I do beautiful things for my people. Read with me starting at the bottom of verse 8. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for the flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you didn't answer. And when I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. And at this point, there's kind of this shift in the text, and it goes down two 
clearly distinct paths. We see this God with his hands wide open to save sinners and welcome people, making two kinds of promises. There are promises for his servant and promises for those who forsake him. One group answers and another group doesn't. One group listens and another group refuses to listen. One group obeys God and one group disobeys and does what's evil in the sight of God. One group chooses what delights God and another group chooses things that God despises. And that's how we seek God and that is how we forsake God. By not listening to him by choosing what he does not delight in. Forsaking God doesn't have to look grand and shocking. Forsaking God isn't necessarily extravagant or overblown. It doesn't have to be consulting with dead spirits for advice. It's simply choosing what God doesn't delight in. It's simply refusing to listen to God and refusing to obey him. That's how we forsake God. And if you want to be in the group that seeks God, then we have to listen to him. We have to hear him. We have to answer when he calls because there are two diametrically opposed outcomes for these two groups. Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you will cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. God's posture towards sinners is one of invitation and appeal. Open hands all day long toward rebellious people. God says, believe me, Listen to me, trust me, answer me, obey me, seek me, and find every single thing that you need. God has only two paths. You forsake him or you seek him. Jesus says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate's wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Two paths are laid out for us in these verses. The way that leads to cosmic renewal, and the way that leads to destruction. But God's hands are open and outstretched all day long. And I want us to remember that as we continue with this kind of sobering dichotomy. On the one hand, we see eating and drinking and rejoicing and gladness of heart. And on the other, we see hunger and thirst and shame and pain. And on the one hand, we see eating and drinking and rejoicing and gladness of heart. And on the other, we see hunger and thirst and shame and pain. We see two futures Two forecasts of what will happen for God's servants and what will happen for those who are not God's servants. One future continues into the new heavens and the new earth, but another future is one of death and destruction and sorrow. 
It's the people who seek God, who listen to God, who obey God, that will eat and drink and rejoice. And those who don't listen will be destined for the sword and the slaughter because they didn't listen when God called. They didn't respond to those open hands of invitation and appeal. They swatted them away or scoffed at them and followed their own thoughts, their own devices. For God's servant, there's waiting full-scale renewal. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And key to this imagery are a few different kind of reversals that come at play in these verses. I want us to take note of just a few of those for the remainder, the remainder of the sermon this morning. I'm going to point out just a few things. I could point out a lot more. Starting in verse 17, the text reads, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So what kind of former things won't be remembered any longer? What kind of things won't be remembered any longer? The list is long, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name just a few of the things that won't be around anymore. Pain will be gone. Tears will be gone. Cries of distress and disappointment and tragedy and death will be no more, according to Revelation 21. Every lingering effect of the fall will be obliterated. It isn't, only, it isn't only that no one cries in the new heavens and the new earth, but we won't be able to remember what crying even was. It isn't like something that exists, but isn't manifesting itself in the moment. It's not, it's not like something that isn't around, so we're not thinking about it right now. It's completely undone. Let's say you bring someone who grew up in a tropical climate exclusively to Kansas in the Midwest and they see snow for the first time. That person will be amazed, but they live in a world where precipitation explains what's going on. In the new heavens and the new earth, pain and suffering and death won't make any sense anymore. The pain and suffering of life will finally be completely alien to the world that we inhabit. Pain and suffering won't have a scaffolding to hang on. They won't have a framework to fit into. They won't have a paradigm to be a part of. It will be as if they'd never existed. Pain and suffering won't only be subtracted from the new world. It's not like the world we have right now, only we all found the fountain of youth and so we live forever. It's a world where every single detail and moment of death is removed completely. We don't, we don't like pain and, and disappointment and suffering, but we understand how they work. Those mechanisms are understandable to us, but the, the mechanisms for, um, for pain and suffering and death will be swallowed up by joy and rejoicing forever. 
forever. Verse 17 says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. That's the kind of commandment that will be natural to our very being in the new heavens and the new earth. Rejoicing in gladness in God will fill every gap that sorrow and suffering creates. Our predisposition will be enjoyment and bliss. We'll be wired for it. One day we'll all rejoice at God's creation perfectly. Perfectly. I was thinking about this Friday night. Um, Friday night I was thinking about a new heavens or a new earth. And I tend to watch um, nature shows. You know, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom, Planet Earth, whatever's on, whatever the newest one that's on, I watch those. Not even, not even with my kids, I just watch them by myself. And this week I watched an episode called The High Seas. And in this episode, some of the animals were literally miles under the surface of the ocean. And these animals look crazy. Crazy. They glow in the dark, right? That makes me sound really sophisticated. These animals glow in the dark. And I literally, literally laughed out loud at my TV because of how nuts they look. It's just wild. It's wild. And I looked at this and I thought to myself, what about that needs to be made new? What about that has to be redone? That looks pretty perfect to me. That's pretty amazing. Like we live in a pretty amazing world. But there's something about it that is going to be, be made new. What about the stunning and beautiful parts of the world? Does God need to make all those things new? And this text caused me to meditate and ask God that question. And I realized at least something will be different. The glory of God that these, creature, that these creatures should naturally evoke in us won't be resisted anymore, right? It won't have to come through the filter of my sinful flesh. The glory from creation that God deserves will sync up with all of our hearts perfectly and seamlessly in the new heavens, in the new earth. Perfectly, we will rejoice in the creation that God has made. Our ability to connect with that glory of creation and the creativity and the majesty and the radiant brilliance of the love of God will be aligned in perfect working order forever. Everything we see will serve to make us love God more deeply all the time. That part will be new. The next thing I want to, I want to note is in verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That doesn't sound that wild, right? If someone builds a house, they should probably inhabit it. But this has, this has a, a specific meaning for us. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. But in Deuteronomy 28, Moses explains to Israel what will happen if they choose to disobey God. And there are certain curses promised to Israel if they choose to disobey God. And God says it like this, if I was going to uh, paraphrase it. If you don't follow and obey me, then you shall do all the planning and all the work and all the sweat equity to build a big, beautiful mansion, but then you'll never get to live there. You'll cultivate and plant 
and tend to a beautiful, sprawling, rich vineyard. And you'll never taste a single drop of wine. In fact, strangers and a nation that you don't even know about is going to reap all the benefits of your faithful hard work. That's the curse that's being reversed in verses 21 and 22. It's very specific. Take note then that the promises of the new creation, the promises of the new heavens and the new earth, guess who they're for? They're for guilty people. They're for guilty people like you and me. A curse that A curse can't be reversed if it's never happened, right? The promises that we long for, the sheer kind of reversal of everything awful is provided for men and women who do not deserve it, but deserve the exact opposite. I hope that encourages you. I heard a a man who does prison ministry once say it this way. The people who need redemption the most deserve it the least. Deserve it the least. The redemption that you and I need so desperately is so far from what we deserve, it is unintelligible. God's not in the business of bringing us up to neutral so that we can have another chance to to try to go at this life again in our own strength and see if we can finally do it this time. He doesn't just clear away all the mistakes and put us back up to par, right? He takes people who are guilty all the way to the bottom. People who have earned, earned those curses, those are the people that he gives blessings to. Lastly, in the new earth, the unchangeable will be changed. The unchangeable will be changed. Read verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I want to emphasize the degree of change here, like the depth of change. The transformation described here is complete transformation. We aren't headed for the best version of ourselves. We aren't longing for kind of small adjustments and small improvements to what we already do pretty well. We need to be transformed all the way from the inside out in the core of who we are. And this is a promise that that's going to happen. You see, you can't have a lion without hurting something. You can't have a lion without hurting something. The truth is, you can't feed a lion a vegetarian diet because it'll die. What's natural to them, what's natural for them to do is to consume other animals. You can't just train a lion to be a vegan. I know that disappoints some of you. It just won't work. The lion will die. And this is the kind of depth, it's natural, it's in its essence, it's identity. And this is the kind of depth of transformation that's highlighted here. The kind of change that will be evident in the new creation will be foundational and fundamental. Everything will be changed all the way to the bottom. The unchangeable will be changed forever. The impossible will be the everyday reality. The unfixable will never be able to be broken again. And this is the transformation that for you, as you trust Jesus, has actually already began. 
If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. There's something about you that's new and you're being made new. And one day we'll be completely new. This happens as we change more and more every day that we walk with Christ and the Spirit of God sanctifies us. This is what we celebrate when we proclaim Christ's death when we take communion every single week. This is what we celebrate and proclaim. At communion, we celebrate that Jesus died. And not only that, he was raised and he has a new body. And because he has a new body, we will have a new body someday. We'll be completely changed. Christ's broken body and shed blood is the only way to experience this kind of transformation. It's the only way to taste and see glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth right now. Because, and in just a minute we're going to take communion, but because just like God extends his hands at the beginning of this section in Isaiah, Jesus Christ extended his hands, right? To die the death that we should have died so that we could die to our sin, to our flesh, and be raised again to newness of life. So if you're a Christian here this morning, we welcome you to to come take communion. If all of your hope, all of your trust is, is on Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness being imputed to you, and you've given up on your own kind of religious rituals to make you right with God, we invite you to take communion this morning. The way we do that is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it in a cup. The stoneware is wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be two stations, one to my right, one to my left, a third one right here in the middle with single serve and gluten-free. And we'll have a station up in the balcony as well. We'll have prayer ministers over here to my left that would love to pray with you if you have any questions or you'd like prayer this morning. So in just a minute, I'm gonna, I'll welcome the musicians back up and I'm going to pray. The fact is, however you came in here today, God was waiting for you here with arms wide open, offering you the opportunity to put down whatever kind of self-righteousness, whatever kind of sin, whatever kind of hope that you have in other um, idols, other gods, other realities in your life, to drop them on the ground and take Christ instead. I'm going to pray for us, and the servers are going to come, and then, uh, and then you all can come up when you're ready. Okay. Father God, I ask that you'd fill us with faith. I ask that you would comfort us, convict us, control us. I ask for people in this room who need your, uh, who need your compassion, who need your um, strength, I ask that they would be comforted. I ask for people in this room who came in proud, And haughty, I ask that you would humble them gently for their good. I ask that you would deepen our experience of your goodness. I pray that you would uh, deepen our devotion to your word and your instructions for us. I ask as we take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup that we would, in a very real way, proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come up when you're ready.